Well, good morning. Let me go ahead and ask you to find Revelation chapter 14. Archie did a wonderful job reading our text this morning. This is an exciting time to be in the church. Uh, this week has been an amazing week for us. Uh, seeing people come to know the Lord, we're going to have an incredible baptism in the next service, and we've seen people saved already this weekend. And I want to just say to you, if you don't know for sure that you're saved, if you're not sure that you're saved, I want to invite you to come to Jesus this morning. In fact, uh, we're going to, in a little bit, have an invitation, and uh, you might not have ever been part of a church that actually calls people to come to Christ, but that's what I want to do. I want to ask you to come to Jesus. How many of you know you're saved? Uh, I want to ask you to help others who don't know what it means to be saved, to, to be saved. So Revelation 14, I think, is going to help us to understand what it means to come to Jesus. A long chapter, a lot going on. As Archie read that, you might even have been scratching your head wondering what is happening in Revelation 14. Well, I can tell you, Revelation 14 covers the final events of the Great Tribulation. It is the beginning of the Battle of Armageddon. It's going to introduce us to the millennial age or the 1,000-year reign of Christ, the final rebellion of Satan, the great white throne judgment, and the coming new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. That's just a little bit. So what I want to say this morning is this from Revelation 14 so that you know where this is all all going uh, Revelation 14 reminds us Jesus is coming soon to rescue and to reward his own. Rescue and reward his own. Jesus is also coming with retribution and reward for his enemies. And you're either his or you're his enemy. There's no middle ground and you need to know that. There, there is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. You are either for him or you are against him. You either are saved today or you're lost. There's four scenes here, and I want you to kind of maybe if you're taking notes, write these four scenes down. There's a large group of people, 144,000 in Revelation 14. We see a large group of people. There are three angels that we need to note, three angels. There are two harvests, two harvests, but there's one victorious Lord. Anyone ever ask you, hey, what's Revelation all about? Just remind them that Revelation, or teach them that Revelation is the revelation of the victorious Lord Jesus Christ. If you get that, you got it. Let's look at this first part of Revelation 14. And what we see is an answer to the prayer we sung at the beginning of this service. We do a call to worship. And our call to worship today, we sang, open up the heavens. We want to see you. Well, here are the heavens open, and we have a glimpse into heaven. John said, look in verse 14, uh, verse 1, chapter 14, then I looked. This is important to note that John is seeing things pretty regularly, but these events that he views are not sequential. In other words, Revelation is not necessarily a chronological order of the coming events. What sometimes we do is we go back, sometimes we move forward, and John sees. What does he see? He sees a Savior. I looked into heaven, behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Everyone say the Lamb. The Lamb. Mount Zion is a particular place. In the Hebrew, it is the word 
that means excellent, marked out. It is a place marked out of excellence. This is distinct from Revelation 13, where John sees the beast, which is the Antichrist, rise up out of the sea, and the false prophet rise up from the earth. Instead, what we have is the lamb in the most excellent place, Mount Zion. The lamb is is so different, so different. The lamb is so different from the beast. The beast comes from this earth. The lamb rules in heaven. The best the beast can offer is this world. And y'all, this world ain't all that. And if all you have is this world, then you're going to miss out on what God intended you to have, and that is heaven and glory along with the lamb. The lamb here then is in the context of redemption. Here is the lamb in the most excellent place, and he's a symbol of our salvation. Our lamb came to redeem us. The beast comes to ruin us. The lamb comes to rescue us. The beast comes to ravage us. There are 144,000 there we see in heaven. All of them have the Father's name and the Lord Jesus' name, the lamb on their forehead. There are 12,000 from every tribe. We learn this from Revelation chapter 7. So what we note here is Revelation 13, John sees, John sees the false Christ, the Antichrist. And in Revelation 14, he sees the true Christ. So in Revelation 13, the beast. Revelation 14, the lamb. Revelation 13, the counterfeit, the, the unholy trinity. The Antichrist, the false prophet, and the dragon or Satan. In Revelation 14, the true God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Revelation 13, the mark of the beast. Revelation 14, the mark of God. Revelation 13 shows those who follow the beast. Revelation 14 exalts those that follow the Lamb. There's no middle ground between Revelation 13 and 14. Those in Revelation 13 that follow the beast are those who are lost without Christ and destined to an eternal hell. Revelation 14 are those who follow the Lamb and are destined for eternal glory. No middle ground. And there's no middle ground today either for us. You also see that they're singing a song. John not only saw, but he heard. Look in verse 2. I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. Just a quick note here. These who are singing are those who've been redeemed from the earth, which means they were saved out of the distress of tribulation. They've been saved from the system and the culture of this world. And they've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And why do they sing a song that no one else can sing? Because no one's experienced what they've experienced. They're singing from the heart, which is where all worship begins. We've said it. You've heard Archie say it before. We don't come here to worship God. We actually bring our worship with us. Whether or not we sing depends on our heart. Whether or not it's heard in heaven depends on how we sing from our heart. That we have a word of, uh, of salvation. We've all been redeemed who have been saved here. So we have something to sing about. 
and we sing from the heart. Others might sing songs of redemption, but they're not really able to learn it. We sing from the heart. We have music like no one else has. And um, and our song drowns out the enemy's song. One of my favorite songs is Crown Him with Many Crowns. The Lamb Upon His Throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Now, I may not be the best singer in the world. Well, that's not even up for debate. I'm not. But when we sing that, man, I sing it loud. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for me and hail him as the matchless king throughout all eternity. I want you to see that the song that the 144,000 is like the songs we sing because it's the song of victory in Jesus. Revelation 15, you have also a commentary on this song. And in that commentary, you have uh, in Revelation 15, the very next chapter, John hearing the song of Moses and the Lamb, Messiah and Moses. Why? Because in Revelation 15, here's how the song goes. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. They're singing to the Lamb. Not songs about them. Not songs about their exploits. They're not lifting up their voice to themselves, but to the Lamb. Why? Because that's a victorious song. What is the relationship between that and, and Moses? They're singing Moses' song and the Lamb's song. Well, if you recall back in Exodus chapter 15, if you've never read Exodus 15, it would be a great, wonderful thing to do this afternoon and go and see this song that is sung after the children of Israel have left Egypt and, and Pharaoh lets them go and then has second thoughts and says, I don't want to let those people go. I'm going after them. And so he gathers his chariots and his horsemen and he goes after the children of Israel who have no weapons, have nothing but sandals on their feet. And they're walking through the desert and they're hemmed in because in front of them is a sea and on the side of them are mountains and behind them, the Egyptian army. And they got nowhere to go. They got nowhere to go except God. And God splits the sea, the Red Sea, and it's split. It's unbelievable that they are walking through on dry ground in the middle of this sea. And they get on the other side of the sea. And maybe they're still biting their fingernails. And maybe they're still shaking in their sandals because the army's coming too. But what does God do? God closes the sea on Pharaoh's army and they all die. And you know what the children of Israel do? They began to sing how mighty is our God, the horse and the rider. He's thrown into the sea. Great and mighty are his deeds. And who's like our God? That's the song being sung in heaven by the 144,000. It's the song we can sing. Because I just want to bring this down to earth for a moment. When there seems to be no way, God will make a way. Can anybody testify today? You were there. You had nowhere to go, hemmed in, the enemy behind you. You thought it was over, but God made a way. That's what God does. He specializes in rescue. 
In fact, we were all lost in our sin and there was nothing we could do. No way we could save ourselves. No way we could ever, ever make ourselves worthy before God. And God made a way. He sent Jesus who died on the cross. And the cross says, there's a way. The cross says, it is the way. And the cross says, if you're going to heaven, you have to come this way. I heard the story of a, a guy lost in New York City. And uh, he went to a police officer. He said, look, I'm looking for a particular bar. What bar are you looking for? It's called the Gates of Hell. The police officer said, you're looking for the Gates of Hell? He said, I'll tell you where it is. See that church right there? You see that cross? You go past the cross and you'll get to the Gates of Hell. You pass up the cross, you'll miss heaven, you'll make hell. But God has made a way. This is the song of the triumph of the Lamb. What's so special about these people singing? Look at verse 4. These 144,000 have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now hold on right there for a moment. This does not mean they are physically virgins. It means they are spiritually virgins. They have not defiled themselves with Babylon that we read about. They are not idolatrous, but they have given themselves over to Christ. They don't get caught up in the culture, but they do get caught up in Christ. And they have been redeemed from mankind, meaning that they were just like everyone else, sinners in need of salvation. And now here they are in heaven, and they are the first fruits of God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no, no guile, they're blameless. See, they followed the Lamb, and they submit to the Lamb. They submit to the Lamb. They do so, and as a result, become first fruits for others to follow. During the Great Tribulation, there will be many people who get their lives to Christ, and some of them are going to die for the Lamb and be martyrs, but they won't be the only ones. They'll set, the, they'll set the, the pace for others to follow Christ. It's a reminder, too, today for us that others may be following us. Someone said, you and I may be the only Bible some will ever read. And they're reading us, aren't they? Today, we live in a culture that needs Christians that will stand up with conviction, but also be compassionate, to be strong, but not through stones, to share with people how it is that we live for Christ and why it is that we live for Christ. What manner of people should we be in light of the coming of Christ like these? In Hebrews 9, verse 14, the Bible says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who the eternal Spirit, who offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences and from dead works to serve the living God. God saved you not just to sit and be like the world. He saved you out of the world, out of mankind, to be like Christ, to live in glorious victory over sin and to say with our lives, say with our lives, there is a lamb on the throne who offers salvation for anyone who will follow after him. You know what John asked the question? He asked this. He said, we've seen the Lord's love for us, and now we know we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. If we have the hope of his coming, if we have the hope one day we will be just like him, then in this life we purify ourselves to live separated from this world. We've been redeemed from this earth. We too have a song of victory, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We are also here for others to follow. Some of you might be the very first fruits for your family. You might be the first one in your family to give your life to Christ. They may wonder, like a little girl that got saved in our church just recently, whose family's wondering, why are you in that church? Are you in some sort of cult? Why do you follow these superstitions? But her life points to her family and says, Christ has redeemed me from the earth. 
and He can redeem you as well. Some of you may be the first fruits in your workplace. You may be the only person in your workplace that's saved. And you might even be saying, I don't even know why I'm working here. Everyone else here is pagan and lost. And man, it is so dark, God has you there. Your testimony to point to the fact that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have His name on you. You have a song of redemption and separated from this world on mission with God. Secondly, uh, look at the gospel proclamation that was given over the earth. This is the proclamation I'm sure that was sung. And now there's an angel proclaiming the gospel over the earth at the very end of time. At the very end of time. Verse 6. Then I saw an angel flying directly overhead and an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, and here's the gospel message in the end. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Here is a curse and a blessing. This is what's proclaimed in this gospel. It is an eternal gospel, which means this. It is the gospel that's always been. This is not a new gospel. There is no such thing as a new gospel. There is only one good news from God. One good news from God, and that is Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that is the only way in which any of us will be saved is through the gospel that tells us about the death of Jesus Christ. This is... The beginning of birth pangs, Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24 when there's persecution and there's all types of wars and rumors of wars and pestilence on the earth. But then Jesus said, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all of the world. It is my personal conviction that we don't have to have the gospel preached to every place before Jesus comes back for his church because he's promised that the gospel will be proclaimed at the very end to every nation. And here we read about it. Here we read about it. And what is the gospel here? The gospel is a proclamation of hard truths. Give God glory. Quit living for yourself. Quit living for your desires. Quit following the way of the beast, which is selfish, self-centeredness. Instead, follow Christ. Repent and turn. It's the very message Jesus preached when he came to the earth. Jesus preached at the beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against this generation and condemn it for they repented from the preaching of Jonah. Unless you repent, Jesus said, you'll all likewise perish. This message of the gospel is a hard message. It's a message, turn from your sin, turn to Christ, turn away from your own ways, and turn to His. It is a message of repentance. That's what the gospel is. Repentance is not remorse. It is the understanding that I have to turn in my thinking so that I turn in my living. John Piper said, repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all our praise and our obedience. Jesus said this to his disciples as a, after he had risen from the dead. He made sure that the apostles would continue to call for repentance. And he said, thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The, the, the bottom line is, the bottom line is these angels at the end of time are calling for repentance. And it is the very thing that you and I have been called to proclaim to this world we live in. 
We live in a world that needs to be called out of its stupor and into the reality of Christ through the call to repentance. I think it's one of the hardest things that we do as Christians is to confront people in their sin and ask them if they'd be willing to turn from their sin and repent and come to God. But it is the very thing that we've been called to do. We've been called to call people to repentance because we live in a world that's upside down and all wrong. The old movie, The Poseidon Adventure, that ship capsized. And when it capsized and began to sink, it sank from the the top to the bottom first. The the, the bottom of the ship was towards the surface and the top of the ship was towards the, the bottom of the ocean. People were turned all around trying to figure out in this movie, how do I escape? And they, instead of running to life, they ran to death because they were going to the top of the ship, which was actually going towards the bottom of the ocean. Only a few people realized what was going on, and they made themselves uh, made their way to the bottom of the ship, which was actually closer to the surface where they were rescued. Y'all, we live in an upside-down world. We live in a world that says right is wrong and wrong is right. We live in a world that does not understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have to turn from our sin and trust Christ. And we've been called with this message of repentance to this world to say, give glory to God and honor Him and fear Him. Turn from your sin and be saved. What is at stake if we don't? Look at verse 8. The second angel, there's a second angel, said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Here's the idea again of idolatry, of going our own way that leads to immorality. And if you think that sexual sins don't matter, notice how much they do. 9, verse 9, you see there are two eternal destinies. Then a third angel, a third angel followed saying with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he shall drink the wine of God's wrath poured out in full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and the image, whoever receives the mark of his name, Y'all, this is the eternal destiny of the people that live next door to us, who live down the street from us, and they, we work with, and we go to school with, who don't know Jesus Christ. When they die, they don't just cease existing. We're told here there is eternal destiny for them. There are those in heaven who are worshiping the Lamb. They've been sealed because they've been redeemed. They've been saved. And there are those who aren't sealed by the Lamb, but they have a mark of the beast. They are the ones who go their own way think it's right they don't cease existing they suffer forever forever hell is forever thomas watson gave an illustration of preaching on the fate of those who worship the beast in revelation 14 and all those who die and go to hell he was thinking about a bird a bird he said oh eternity oh eternity Thomas Watson said, if, if you can imagine this, the body of the earth and the sea were turned into sand. If the earth and the sea was just turned into sand. And all the air up in the starry heaven were nothing but sand. All the air in the starry heaven, nothing but sand. And a little bird should come every thousand years 
and fetch away in her bill but the tenth part of a grain of all the heap of sand, what would the numberless years be that would be spent before that vast heap of sand would be fetched away? If all of the sea, all the earth, if all the starry sky was sand, and every thousand years a little bird came and just grabbed one grain, how long would it take for that heap of sand to disappear? Yet, at the end of all of that time, the sinner will not come out of hell. The word ever breaks the heart. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and ever. This is hell. It's forever. It's ferocious. Someone would say, is, is hell really that? Is it really for people? Are they there forever? John Stott considers, I find the concept of an eternal conscious punishment in hell intolerable and I don't understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are a fluctuating, unreliable guide to the truth, and we must not be exalted the place of supreme authority in determining it. As a committed evangelical, my question must be and is, not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's Word say? And if you were here to say, well, I just don't believe in my heart, that God's going to send anyone to hell forever again. It is not for us, our subjective minds, to make a distinction or a decision on our heart, but what does God say? So I don't see how God will send anybody to hell. He's, he's loving. God is loving, and I don't see how a loving God would send someone to this place forever. And you're right, God is love, but with love comes wrath and anger. What one of you, what one of us today, who would see one of our loved ones mistreated, within our vision, see our loved ones mistreated, would not react to that mistreatment. Would not act and do something about it, right? I've had my kids mistreated before, and I'm going to tell you something. I love my kids, and you better watch out. And I love my wife. How much more does God love us? How much more does He love His Son? And the mistreatment of His Son will not go unpunished. Hebrews 10 says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and he was outraged by the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hell's forever. Verse 12, verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saint, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now a beatitude. So you have this horrible scene of those who are lost going to hell forever, but you have this beatitude of blessing 
for those who are saved who die. Death is an enemy. Death is an intruder. Death is a trespasser into our lives. It's not normal and natural to die. And I have been around a lot of death over the years as a minister. I've been in the hospice facilities, in the hospitals. I've been in homes. And I've heard well-meaning people say, death is just a normal cycle. It's just part of life. It's just natural. It is not natural. It is not normal. We weren't made to die. We were made to live. But we have to be redeemed from death. That is because of our sin in order that we might rest and have reward when we leave this world. There's rescue for the believer who dies in the Lord. And there's rest. The rest here. The rest here is not about sleep. Rest here is a word that means rejuvenation or energy or joy. There's joy for the dead believer. That sounds so strange to say. But if you're going through the Great Tribulation and you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are being beheaded, who are dying for their faith, and you would say, they lost it all. No, they didn't lose a thing. Blessed, God says. Why? They're rewarded. The reward is in the Lord. And we get this glimpse into heaven where the redeemed are blessed. And every time we come to a funeral... Here, even in our day, when a believer, a brother, a sister, a family member, or a loved one goes to be with the Lord, we can say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And they have ceased from their labor on earth, and they are resting now. Resting doesn't mean they're asleep. It means they are rejuvenated, and they are in the joy of the Lord. They are in the presence of God, and they are experiencing the greatest amount of joy, the joy that would kill them if they were in their physical body again. Such joy. This is the... These are the two destinies for every person, heaven or hell. Thirdly, there is this, a, a glimpse into heaven, a scene of worship for the redeemed and the unredeemed and their destinies. And then you see the final harvest. The one is a grain harvest. Verse 14, I look. And behold, I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle. This is the Messiah. What is he doing in verse 15? He's reaping the harvest. This reminds us of what Jesus told us in Matthew 13, that there's going to be a harvest in the end of time. And that harvest is going to be a place where wheat and tares are gathered up together, Jesus said. And they are separated. They are separated based on whether or not they are gods or not. Like, there are people growing up in the field right now that seem maybe even to be saved, but the final harvest will differentiate the saved and the unsaved. And then there's one other harvest, verse 17. It says, not Jesus, but another angel with fire coming to destroy basically the earth. And remember, God promised he's not going to destroy the earth with water, but now fire and the sickle was brought into the earth and blood flows basically as long as ancient Palestine, 200 miles. This is an introduction to a battle I'm sure you heard of. The battle of Armageddon. Where Jesus comes against those who have come against him and destroys them forever. It's recorded in Isaiah, the Old Testament, that the Lord's coming from Basra. He's coming in splendid red apparel. Why? Because he is trampling out the wine press in his anger, in his wrath. He's ultimately coming in Revelation, Revelation 19. He comes with a sharp sword, that is the Lord Jesus, to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
Almighty. There's a lot here. And it'll unfold as we move into the next chapters to see what is Armageddon and what will the coming of Christ be like. But you can just wrap it all, all up into this. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to reward his own with glory and retribution against those who aren't his with wrath. Pastor, you really believe that? With all my heart. And there's no middle ground today. You are either on the Lord's side or you're on the other side. Well, I would never take the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is going to be taken by so many in the end who want to go their own way and not God's. There's redemption for sin, and we need to realize this. The gospel is hard, and it's not always easy to hear, but it's true. The gospel tells us this, that we're all sinners and that we sin against the holy God, that we're all sinners and we need to be saved. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter when you were born. It doesn't matter what religion, race, none of that matters. We're all, we're all human, born in sin, and we've chosen to rebel against God. So therefore, we need salvation. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. You need to be saved. Everyone needs to be saved. Period. And we're all sinners needing to be saved. And there is a Savior. There's one Savior. Only one. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no name under heaven whereby men must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. So we're all sinners. We've all sinned against God. We've all broke His law. It doesn't matter where we are, who we are. Even if we've never heard the Ten Commandments, we have broken them. And we need them to be saved. And we have a Savior. And it's Jesus. You might begin to ask yourself the question, what about all of these people all over the world who've never heard what we heard this morning? Before you ask that question, before, and it's a good question, there's nothing wrong with that question, we should need to wrestle with that question. I need, there's a more important question for you. You're a sinner. You've sinned against God, haven't you? You need a Savior if you're going to go to heaven. And miss hell. The bigger question is, have you been saved? Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? There's only one way. Only one way you will escape eternal judgment and the wrath of God. It's to receive the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he absorbed all the wrath of God for your sin as your substitute. Think about that. You either receive then... The gift of God in the cross. Or you're rejected. There's no middle ground. I hope today you'll be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. And I do thank you that you've given us this text. You've reminded us clearly your plan throughout all of eternity. And that is that you would rule and reign here with your people forever. But your people are those that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that's it. And there are some here today who've never been saved. And I pray that they will be. I want you to just keep your eyes closed and, and, and prayer, be in a prayer attitude. It is never, and we don't condone this, 
any time. Uh, our goal or our, um, you know, our, our, our mode of operation is scare anybody. But I'm going to tell you, Revelation 14 may be one of the most scary chapters in the Bible, isn't it? Because it tells us that there are two eternal destinies, and they're forever, heaven or hell. And the difference between those who go to heaven and hell is, is, is this. The ones who go to heaven have been saved and redeemed from the earth by the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who go to hell, they've not been redeemed by the Lamb. Here's the question. Have you been saved? Have you trusted Jesus? Do you know for certain that you're saved? If not, why not today? Why not give your life to Christ? How do I do that, Pastor? Hey, admit, I'm a sinner. I've broken your law, God. I have sinned against you. I've gone my own way. That's what sin is. Sin is going my own way, not his. Whatever that seems like. It may seem right, the Bible says, but it ends in destruction. The wages of sin is death then. I deserve hell. I've sinned against you, God. I deserve hell. If I get what I deserve, God, I'm going to hell. That's what I deserve. You only come to that conclusion by the Holy Spirit. I can't, I can't make you understand that. The Lord God Almighty convicts and He shows you your sin and then, then He shows you the truth. I do deserve hell. I don't want to go there. I want to follow you, Christ. I want to be where you are. So the next step is then to repent. Repent. It's to turn to God. It's to turn to God in faith. Say, I believe. I believe Jesus died for me. Jesus died on a cross for me. The death I deserve. He took my place. He rose again. I want to follow Christ. I want to be forgiven. God, will you do that for me? Will you give me this gift that I don't deserve? I do not deserve this. By grace, you will give it to me, and I believe it. So I'm going to just trust you right now that you will give it to me. So I ask you. You need to be saved. Would you call out to God? Would you say, dear God, I'm a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. I have broke your law. No doubt I deserve hell. Just tell God that. Admit it. Confess it. But I believe. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died in my place for my sin. Took what I deserve. Thank you. I put my faith and trust in you. I ask you to save me. Forgive me of my sin. Save me right now. I'll follow you. By your help. I thank you that God you've forgiven me. And you saved me today. In Jesus name. Amen.